Hello, welcome to CrossCut Talks. I'm Paris Jackson, the host of CrossCut Now on KCTS 9 and the host of this podcast. In this episode, we dive into the technological phenomenon of artificial intelligence with the founding CEO of the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence, Oren Etzioni. Etzioni sat down with colleague and fellow University of Washington information and computer science professor Sharak Shah during the Crosscut Ideas Festival back in early May. Already, AI is everywhere. Companies are exploring the many uses of AI and a number of tools are widely available for public consumption. We're seeing the benefits in the business world from simple to revolutionary, but at the same time, a host of critiques. As far as regulation, Etzioni doesn't want to rush sweeping new ones, but says companies should adhere to current laws and regulators should focus on the enforcement of potential violations. The bigger concern here, according to Etzioni, is what still needs to be done to prevent this kind of technology from getting into the hands of bad actors. To some degree, he says, it already is. I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation. If you have any feedback, please send it to talks at crosscut.com. Now let's get into it. Hello, everyone. My name is Shirak Shah. Uh, welcome to the CrossCut Festivals. I'm a professor at University of Washington right here in Seattle. Um, my own work revolves around information access, like search and recommendation systems, looking at them uh, from AI perspective. And lately, I've been looking at a lot of these from responsible AI, looking at issues of bias, fairness, and so on. Um, Thank you for that. That wasn't <laughs> expected, but I hope we get a chance to talk a little bit more about uh, that today. But as you know, um, AI these days have been making big strides, not just in the search recommendation space, but pretty much everything we see and touch around us. And so in those fields, and people even those who are not in this field, um, have been asking, well, what does it mean? Where is it heading? Um, and so today we, are going to ask those questions about where we are, where we are going, and should we even go there, um, to somebody that I admire greatly, somebody who's actually, in some respect, my um, colleague at University of Washington, um, but he's now uh, holds the emeritus status with the, with the University of Washington emeritus uh, uh, professor. Uh, but the main hat that um, he wears is the CEO of Allen Institute of AI, or AI2. So it's my great pleasure to welcome Oren Etziani. Uh, welcome, Oren. Thanks for joining us for um, this conversation today. Thank you. So Oren, we'll start with the broad question about the role of AI as you see. And I'm going to quote the AI2 mission that states, contribute to humanity through high impact AI research and engineering. So can you tell us what do you see as high-impact AI? Sure. So uh, there are a lot of issues with AI, a lot of concerns, and some of the applause was indicating that, and we'll get into that. But I think it is really important that we have a two-sided narrative, not a one-sided negative one. So AI has a huge number of potential benefits. Our mission at the Allen Institute for AI 
is to investigate those. But to give you a sense for that, let me just mention two quick examples. The first one is the use of AI in assistive technology. So if you have a hard time seeing, you have a hard time hearing, you have a hard time walking, AI can be a tremendous boon in describing what's in front of you, in building increasingly sophisticated hearing aids and devices that can transcribe sound and so on, and in building more sophisticated mobility devices. That's one huge area that I think is up and coming and very important. Actually, if you generalize that and you think about anything that we're not particularly good at, and in my case, there's a lot of things like that, then uh, this is where AI can step in and help. And let me just give one example, and then I'm not going to speak for so long in response to every question. But let's think about generative AI, which is on everybody's minds, generating pictures and drawings. There's the obvious downside. There's an issue of uh, copyright. There's an issue of the artist's uh, livelihood. But from my point of view, as somebody who cannot draw or paint to save their lives, for the first time in my life, I'm actually able to create pleasing pictures. I'm able to be created. And of course, the same is true uh, for billions of other people. So the point that I'm trying to make is when you think about AI, about the concerns and about the benefits, there are really two sides to every AI capability. And I think it's important to remember that. Wonderful. So let's actually talk about that other side. Since you mentioned um, a lot of these benefits, and clearly there are more and more of these cases coming up. Um, people who are critical of these. Um, so one of the things that we've been hearing um, lately, and anyone who hasn't been living under the rock knows about ChatGPT or MidJourney or DALI and um, some of these generative AI tools, as you're talking about. A lot of them are built, um, at least the text-based things, language-based things on la large language models. Um, there have been criticism that these things are, that they have limits and they often hallucinate or generate toxic responses. Um, do you see this as a, as a temporary setback that we just need to fine tune things, we just have to uh, you know, debug some of these things? Or is this a, a bigger concern going forward? So AI is a technology or a set of technologies and, and a power tool. And I think that chatbots or large language models, these things um, are gonna get better in various ways, but they definitely have some limitations and concerns. And the thing that I wanna emphasize is, this is part and parcel of technology. This is not a new thing. Let's talk about cars for a second, right? They're everywhere. They've completely transformed our lives, our ability to get from A to B. Nobody or hardly anybody says, hey, maybe we should not have cars. We have cars. They're regulated, which is appropriate. And at the same time, they cause 40,000 deaths each year on our highways in the United States alone, a million accidents. Obviously, there's carbon emissions and so on and so on. And so then we're improving them with electric cars and so on. But the point I'm trying to make is technology always has costs and benefits. And this technology uh, of chatbots, large language models, is no different. The only thing that's different is it's just so new. So we're trying to figure out what are the right regulations, what are the pitfalls, et cetera. Um, so, so this is something that has been troubling in this sector. 
right? Uh, as we compare with say cars or other technologies uh, that are well understood and well regulated, the criticism here is there are few organizations that are essentially pushing this without anyone stopping or anyone having them reconsidered because we lack those regulations. So what do you see? I mean, it seems that you're suggesting, yeah, we, you know, that that's one of the things we need to advance here. But can you elaborate on the need for regulation and, and what is maybe a framework? How do we think about this? Sure. So again, it's a very complex conversation because regulation is, is complex. And I perhaps have a little bit of a contrarian view because uh, I like to say that the road to hell is paved with the EU's well-intentioned regulations. <laughs> and, and what I mean by that is the EU is very fast on the draw to regulate and to have sweeping regulations. And for example, we have GDPR, which is complex, but at least for me, it's basically resulted in me clicking yes, 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 an enormous number of times. It's had no positive effect and it's just kind of a, a nuisance. It's a little bit oversimplified, but that's the issue. So when I think about AI regulation, my first thoughts are we should not rush. My second thought is we should not be regulating research, which is very free-flowing and has many potential benefits. We need to think about regulating AI applications. And the first line is to regulate applications using laws that already exist on the books. And let me give a concrete example of that because everything I've said is particularly abstract. Let's take um, housing loans. More and more, it's the case that uh, applications for loans, mortgages, what have you, are automatically processed by AI algorithms. Well, there are already laws on the books that say that you cannot discriminate in making these loans on the basis of race, gender, uh, various demographic variables, et cetera. Now, obviously, it's the responsibility of the AI companies who are providing these tools to obey these laws. So in this case, we don't need new regulations, we just need enforcement by the appropriate agencies of the existing regulations. So again, people talk about AI regulations, we need an AI czar, all these things. No, we need to uh, make sure the laws on the books work. And then if somebody comes and says, you know, well, my AI did it, okay? I don't know why this mortgage was denied. My, my AI did it. Obviously, that's not acceptable. Right? AI systems and people using them have to obey the law like everybody else. But that is a great example of a very different approach. That is not what you're hearing about. What you're hearing about is people are concerned legitimately and politicians are jumping on the bandwagon right? because, you know, hey, we can't fix Ukraine, we can't fix inflation, we, we can't fix you know, the dysfunction of Congress. Let's legislate AI. Right, that, that's gonna make us feel good. So, I, I, again, a little bit oversimplified, but I'm just saying, let's not rush to new sweeping regulations. Let's start by making sure that the rules that are on the book, rules and regulations, are enforced appropriately, even when AI is being used. Yeah. So I hope the audience heard this and you know, have some interesting questions as follow-up, but I'm gonna have an, a follow-up to that, uh, because I think, you, again, you, you started talking about it that what's lacking there, even if you have the existing rules and regulations, um, I think what's lacking there is that accountability part. 
right? So let's take an example of self-driving cars. If that car hits a pedestrian, who's responsible, who takes responsibility? Clearly it's, it's not the driver because the driver wasn't driving. Um, so would the car company or their engineers, or let's say you know there's one company that builds the, the car, but then they buy the software, the AI from other company, who's going to be responsible for that? Or is it going to be some local authority that cleared this car driving on our uh, roads? And, and to me, that's not clear yet. So um, I'm a computer scientist by training. I was a computer science professor at UW for many years. And in computer science, we like to take problems and reduce them to previous problems. We say, here's the problem. We're going to reduce it to a previously solved problem. In this case, it's already the case that cars are incredibly complex. Your car, forgetting about self-driving, easily has more than 100 computers in it already. It's a very, you know, it's got uh, anti-lock brakes, it's got all kinds of sensors, uh, and so on and so on. So when there's a car accident, this question you described already arises. Is it the driver's fault? Is it the manufacturer's fault? Is it the manufacturer of the computer? What does the local authority say, et cetera, et cetera? And we have case law to adjudicate it. So it's true that we need some more case law and some principles to do that, but it's not at all clear to me that we need new regulations here. We just need to work through the different cases to address this concern. Uh, I actually think that there's no reason to believe that the system that exists today is not gonna work here just fine. So, uh, so I think I partially agree with you. I, I see, you know, the point. What uh, a nice but... way of saying you completely disagree. It's like, uh, I personally, Chirag earlier told me he thought I was a partially smart person, and so it was good that I. Uh, so please, please. Now this goes on record, right? <laughs> we were joking about hot mic before. <laughs> um, that there are already some cases that are complicated where. Um, you know, so, so we know this case where Getty Images sued you know, Stable Diffusion because they um, seem to have plagiarized on this content, generated the, uh, the, the content. Um, and, and it's not as simple as uh, other cases, the precedents where you use some content uh, without paying for the royalty, without paying, you know, so this is a different thing. I think what makes this complicated is it's the path to that derivation is not clear, right? It's not as, like when we talk about, you know, uh, a, a, a derived, you know, content or, or, or uh, intellectual property, this is not clear because stable deficient can say, well, it's our um, model that learned the style and then it's now generating things. And of course we see this in DALI and other things too. So we didn't copy it, we learned from it and so I think this is a new language for which we don't, I, I, at least I'm not aware of like a precedent where we can say, oh, because we've done things in the past like this. Yeah, so I don't mean to suggest that there's nothing new under the sun, right? There's a lot new and we do have to work through it. Again, let's, it's nice to talk about specific examples. So let's talk about the case that you brought up. It's a very interesting one because there are already rules that say that you can train on existing content and that does not violate the copyright, right? If you train on copyrighted material, that's okay as long as you're not competing with the owner of the copyright. 
Now this case that you're describing, Getty Images suing, is because in fact there is competition, right? Getty Images and the people that they represent is losing business uh, because of this generative AI. And so there is something new and I think the courts are gonna need to work through this, this particular issue, and I'm really not sure what the right answer is. So I'm totally agreeing with you that this is- Not a, partially. Not partially, <laughs> totally. There's uh, uh, a bunch of stuff to, to work out here, but I do think we have a good basis to go from, meaning that the principle of we are able to train AI systems, and, but we shouldn't train them so that you put people out of work, right, by, by using their content. That, that seems bad. So, so actually, that I'm glad you brought this up because this is a major issue right now where artists and creators, and they're all questioning um, at what point they start losing their livelihood because of this, right? And already uh, we're seeing cases where you could replace a human being uh, for the traditional job that they've done by using this. I mean, earlier we were talking to Andrew Yang about the, the writer's strike in, in Hollywood, and... Um, um, you know, you could use an AI tool to, to write content for you. I mean, maybe it's not perfect and a human being can go and do some editing, but turns out that maybe for a lot of these things, you don't need actual writers. Um, so what are your thoughts on, uh, this is maybe less about technology. You know, uh, clearly the technology is already being capable and it's only going to get better, but implications on society, implications are our economics and, and so on. So what are your thoughts on that? Is this a good move, we are, <laughs> good future we are going towards? Yeah, so the history of technology has been a great illustration of this point, right? It used to be that 98% of us worked in agriculture and not as kind of a hobby like growing tomatoes in your garden, but backbreaking, very difficult work. And now maybe 1% of the people in the country work on agriculture. There was some pain and displacement associated with that, but overall, in my mind, that's a really good thing. Along with that change came a huge rise in living standards, right? Food is a lot cheaper, more plentiful. Again, there's many social distortions, right? I'm not at all dismissing the fact, the sad fact that there are people in this country and in this city who are hungry, right? That's a terrible thing. But that's not actually because of the technology. The agricultural technology has meant that most of us uh, cannot work on the farm. That's the general trend. As that's happened, we've increased productivity, we've increased welfare in the sense of, of well-being and standard of living, and literally billions of people, particularly in the developing world, have risen out of poverty. So again, not always a popular view, but I see technology as a great enabler of, of many good things. In this particular case, it's tricky, right? Because there will be displacement and uh, uh, rote jobs, particularly rote tasks, and things that are kind of easy are gonna be taken over by the technology and that creates stress on the system, all of us, right? And in the past it was maybe agricultural workers, and maybe a lot of us are what's called knowledge workers, and now technology is coming for us. It's coming for our jobs. That's the reality of it. I think that we need to manage that process responsibly, but I dare say, 
and again, I know this is not always a popular view, fundamentally it's a good thing. We just need to manage the economics of it and people's lives so that people aren't thrown on the streets. Now, in the case of writers in Hollywood, I understand that they're treated pretty badly. Actually, they were treated pretty badly even before this, which is an interesting point. But now it's getting even worse. So to me, the conversation, to me, there's two separate conversations. One conversation is on somewhat inevitable technological pro progress that has many benefits. And there's a related conversation, but a different one, about what social policies do we put in place to help the people that are hurt and displaced by that process. But certainly the notion of disallowing the technology is, you know, can be superficially tempting, but it's not realistic. So do we want all that work to be farmed to another country where those regulations are not in place, right? That's, we've seen that happen in other industries, right? The, the, solving this problem badly is gonna hurt everybody. We'll be back with more after this. At Amazon, there's a way up for anyone because there's something for everyone. Like Jessica, who completed free technical training programs and is getting her bachelor's with Amazon's prepaid tuition. Even if you have no knowledge or no experience in IT, Amazon has the tools and the resources to teach you. I've been promoted three times and it's been a significant boost in pay for me. Free technical training programs at Amazon move full-time and part-time employees into higher paying jobs. Visit aboutamazon.com for more info. So um, certainly we, we don't want to stop this and, and I, I don't think honestly we could. Uh, even if you wanted to, right? Uh, and there are plenty of reasons for um, continuing to go. But even then, um, it seems this is going too fast, that we're not, societally, we are not ready you know, for this. Economically, we are not ready for regulatory, you know, process-wise, legally. In many ways, we are, this is moving too fast. So there was a proposal um, recently uh, that was signed by bunch of um, uh, visionaries, or at least big name people, to pause this for six months. Do you think that's a good idea? Is, that, is there a reason for us to pause, or should we just keep going as fast as we can? So I think that proposal that you're alluding to that was signed by a lot of um, prominent people and, and colleagues is really symbolic more than anything. Think about it. What difference would six months make in the scheme of things, right? So they're kind of signing up to say we're concerned and so on. The concern is valid. The particular solution, which is really as simple, is rather silly. Six months is not going to make a difference. Our adversaries that we have plenty of uh, economically and militarily are not going to stop. And I think it's extremely unlikely that something like this would uh, get adopted anyway. So I, I view that proposal very negatively. I didn't sign up to it. Not because we shouldn't be putting in guardrails and we shouldn't be figuring out how to do this right, but because the proposal is kind of like you know, greenwashing or whatever. Like, it's a feel-good proposal that has no meaning. It's, in, it's, it's demagoguery as opposed to uh, uh, action. I want to make one other point, and then uh, you can partially agree with me again, um, about it going too fast. 
from my point of view, it's going too slowly. Why is it going too slowly? Because we have major, major problems in pandemic management. New viruses coming. Bill Gates has warned about the next pandemic that we're woefully unprepared for. In climate change and so on, where AI can be a tremendous helper in figuring out carbon capture technologies and generating new vaccines. It already had a role in the Moderna vaccine. In so many ways, AI can help solve uh, humanity's thorniest problems. Well, why hasn't it yet? Because it's not moving fast enough. So we have major emergencies, and we need AI to move faster so we can tackle those. That's what I really believe. So you also answered one of the questions that actually came up from audience really about this. And um, I, I actually agree with you on the pause thing, not just partially, um, maybe for a slightly different reason though. I do, I do think that um, this is mostly symbolic, um, but, but a little bit more than symbolic, I think it, it creates the awareness, right? So often, I mean, just as I was driving here, I saw there's people on the side of the street holding a sign for no to war, yes to peace, and um, honk if you agree. I was thinking, you know, what does that accomplish? They're not signing a petition, they're not sending message in any, anywhere, how long these people are gonna stand here today, and, but what it was probably doing is at least making me think, or anyone who's looking at that making you think. So it serves that awareness purpose that this happened, right? But mechanically, I don't think just those signs themselves gonna stop the war or just that petition is gonna not, you know, uh, have us like do all this, you know, or solve these problems. But I think it's, it's good for the awareness and I think that's what, but I don't really see how practically that plays out for anyone. I, I don't know who would agree to that and, and, and what they will gain out of that. So, so I agree with that for a slightly different reason than what you mentioned. Um, uh, once again, you know, so thanks for our audience for bringing questions. I'm going to get to it soon. Uh, Oren is already answering some of that. Um, uh, I, I want to shift the direction a little bit. And, and um, since you mentioned this before, that um, there should be, you know, regulations of the things for, for uh, putting some guardrails and, you know, and, and controlling maybe in some regard, but not for research, that we should really um, fuel research even more. Um, so I'm going to ask you this question wearing my, you know, academic hat on, and, you know, Oren also has his still one foot in uh, academia. I learned that he was teaching a class last quarter <laughs> at University of Washington, so he can at least appreciate this. Um, what I've seen happening over the last, this, you know, few years, not just last few months, but the AI has started creating this concentrated power. Um, because it's getting incredibly expensive to build, maintain these models that are actually effective, that would actually be practical. So we talk about these large language models, they are expensive. Um, this is not something that any organization can just afford to build, um, including in academia, including big universities like University of Washington. What is, what is your view, what are your thoughts or suggestions for academics and other organizations, nonprofits maybe, to still be competitive in this edge where it seems, unless you work at one of these big tech companies, you can't make AI advancements because you just don't have resources that are needed. Great, Chris and Chirag. And just to give a little bit more context, 
um, the latest class of AI models and techniques have been particularly expensive to build and to run, and that's changed. There's already a skew where obviously large technology corporations have tremendous uh, power, they have some of the smartest people, but now uh, it's become an extreme uh, challenge. Um, I, I had the privilege of serving on a task force convened by the Biden administration to build a national AI research resource to try to level the playing field more and to provide resources to, say, academia so that they have a chance uh, to build these models. So very much agreed that's a concern. There are a number of things that are happening, including work to reduce the cost of building these things so that uh, more people can, uh, can participate. And we actually wrote a paper a while ago on what we call green AI, which is an attempt to put in motion ways to reduce the cost. But I want to mention something really interesting, which again illustrates um, the point about regulation and why I'm at least ambivalent about it and why I keep emphasizing it needs to be done right and not too quickly. And that's unintended consequences. So very recently, a different argument has been made. People have come to me and said, gosh, you know, in response to these models, these AI things being in the hands of Google and OpenAI and so on, there's all this work in the open source community and they're putting out these chatbots. But you know what? These open source folks, uh, they don't have a brand to protect. They're smaller. They're irresponsible. Okay, so um, uh, we really shouldn't let them do that because what if people use it and, and, and get hurt and so on? So some people, and again, I don't know who's behind it, maybe well-intentioned people, maybe the large corporations, are starting to agitate to regulate this in a way that shuts down the smaller participants, which in turn uh, hurts startups, hurts uh, academics, uh, and so on and so on. So. Another thing about regulation, and sorry for stating the obvious, it's a tool that's very subject to political distortion, to distortion by special interests. So that's why we come into the regulation process with very good intentions, and what we end up with has often the opposite effect. So be careful. That's actually, uh, I can have a whole hour of conversation on that, but I'm gonna move on to some of the audience questions. Um, and, and again, some of that you know we've already covered, so I'm going to skip some of it. Uh, but let me um, talk about this. Um, one of the questions is, um, how do you think AI will um, uh, AI will solve problems? This is from Joshua. However, it will be inevitably be used for military applications. For Mil military, military applications. What are your concerns? And I think I, I would also add, um, uh, earlier this week, we heard you know, Jeffrey Hinton you know, stepping down from Google. One of his things that he mentioned is, it's gonna be very hard to stop bad actors from using the same AI for do doing you know, bad things. And so how do we prevent that? Huge, huge concerns. L let, me, let me take them uh, one at a time. One of the biggest, in my mind, concerns about AI is bad actors using it. It's a power tool, it's a powerful technology, and bag actors are already using it and gearing up to use it more. We need to figure out what to do there. I don't have any great answers. And by the way, again, regulation is not gonna solve it because they don't uh, abide by, by the rules. So um, that is, 
if you come away with one takeaway from this conversation is we really need to think hard about that. As far as the military goes, uh, militaries all over the world, there was an article in the New York Times, I think it was yesterday, I saw it online, exactly on this topic. Militaries all, all over the world are engaged in a competition to build uh, faster AI-based, faster, more powerful AI-based uh, technologies. And there, again, uh, I wanna make two distinctions that are not completely obvious and are important. The first distinction is the distinction between offensive intelligent weapons, right, ones that kill people, and defensive intelligent weapons, ones that protect people. So let's take Israel as a case in point. The um, folks in Gaza uh, and Lebanon, whether you agree with them, their motivations or not, uh, are shooting rockets and mortars at indiscriminately at Israeli population centers, civilian population centers, schools, hospitals, etc. The Iron Dome technology, partially developed uh, here and partially in Israel, uses AI to block that and save civilian lives. Really important side note, it's not just saving Israeli civilian lives, it's actually saving Palestinian civilian lives, A, because these weapons are indiscriminate and there's large civilian uh, Palestinian population, but also because no country can stand uh, rockets being shot indiscriminately at their civilians, Israel would be forced to go in, have a very horrible war where a lot of Palestinian civilians get killed. So this, Defensive use of AI technology is a huge boon to anybody who's rational uh, about this topic. Defensive intelligent technology is key. Now, when we go to offensive technology, which is extremely scary if you think about it, there's another important distinction to make, and that's between the intelligence of the technology and its autonomy. So more intelligent AI technology means that it could be better targeted, fewer civilian casualties, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Autonomous technology, that's the thing that we're really worried about, right? So the Russians or us you know, send a missile, nuclear missile, days later or months later, it appears in the arena and it's been empowered to decide whether to detonate or not. That is completely chilling. That's a second huge, huge problem. So as much as I'm an AI optimist, uh, I am really opposed to that, okay? That autonomous use of offensive technology really needs to be the subject of a global treaty to stop it. And again, back in the day, as a symbolic gesture, I signed an open letter to President Obama to uh, do this, and it did what other open letters do, right? It, it, <laughs> not much. But again, to asking to raise your awareness, um, I feel like there are so many issues we can think about with AI, but this is a huge one. We do not want to live in a world that's highly destabilized by all these autonomous weapons running around. And to stop it, for us not to have them, we need to insist that the other side not have them too. And the only way to do that is through the, the process that has yielded treaties, right? We have non-proliferation uh, treaties. We have had treaties against landmines, et cetera, et cetera. We need to be acting on that urgently. So no terminators. 
<laughs> yeah, time travel I'm very ambivalent about too. Yeah. But certainly we don't want to build uh, that technology that decides on its, uh, on its own to go to war. Um, so, and I'm going to cover this another question with this, uh, which is about what's your biggest concern about potential misuse of AI? I mean, it seems like you're really concerned about this autonomous uh, warfare. You know, is there anything else that you're really concerned about in terms of misuse of AI? Sure. The two that we just talked about, the use of it by uh, nefarious actors and the, um, the autonomous military offensive use of the technology, those are the big two. And it's really important to emphasize that if you think about the conversation, which uh, you're a part of and I live with every day, it's remarkable to me how much airspace this, these issues get compared to other ones. I would argue that we, there are many issues, privacy and jobs and bias and toxicity, those are very real issues. There's also some kind of uh, hypoth hypothetical science fiction-y talk about AI taking over the world. I wouldn't focus on that. But we need more on, on these very dangerous uses of, of AI. You ready to talk about politics? Nobody is, but here comes. How do you think AI will affect the 2024 presidential election? Any guardrails that need to be put in place now or yesterday? Well, wow, that's a really great question because it's very concrete and we have a ticking, uh, a ticking clock. So one of the places where misuse of AI is, uh, has reared its ugly head is misinformation, right? Uh, more and more documents, audio, images, video are, uh, are not genuine. And more and more the case that on social media, the account that you're interacting with could well be a bot. Soon phone calls that you get uh, will have that nature, and so on and so on. It's a big problem. It's already been weaponized in the previous election to some effect. The cost of doing that and the cost of creating that misinformation um, very convincingly has gone way down, right? You can think of historically the Gutenberg Press and advances that followed took the dissemination of information, the cost of disseminating information, and, and dropped that way down ultimately to zero, almost zero. And now the cost of authoring information is uh, quickly going to zero. That is a huge problem. Again, not being an attorney and a regulator, I don't know what, what to do about it. I've uh, declared, right, which is worth exactly uh, what, what you paid for it, that information and that, say, accounts or bots or people who call you on the phone should always declare whether they're human or, or not. I feel like we have a right to know if this is, right, am I talking to a human or to a machine? But, uh, and actually, in the state of California, there was uh, an attempt to create that as a law. I'm not sure what happened to it. But as a practical matter, I think that the next election, we're going to see a lot of um, of that misinformation engendered by AI. And all I can say is somebody who's been working in the field is, I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, uh, that's yeah. all he has to say. I'm sorry. <laughs> but, but, but here's the thing I mean, this is an interesting you know, idea. Of, you have to identify your human to be in. Now, uh, I'm going to cover another question about the bias because um, 
we've seen in cases of, this is a classical example, now it's a classical example of uh, facial recognition which is being, which is biased towards certain demographic, right? But, but I mean, that's not the only case. There are many other applications where the kind of biases that are built in because these data sets, these systems are built by certain kind of, certain like Western culture, right? And so it discriminates against, you know, or, or it's not as good for people who are of different color, different gender, different culture. Um, and so do you see this as a problem? I mean, how do we debug this problem? Uh, or, or is this just going to be a self-correction or we need to take some big you know, step here? Right, so I have to say that facial recognition is not my favorite AI technology by a long shot. And for example, at our institute and in our incubator with our mission of AI for the common good, we, we disavow it. We don't do it, we don't do research on it, even, even basic research. The specific problem that you described uh, where it's particularly inaccurate, say, with people of color, is actually very easy to debug. Uh, you just need to change the training data. So I think it's uh, disappointing that people didn't realize it earlier, didn't train the technology better. Uh, I hope we learn from that, but that's easily fixable. One of the worst uses of facial recognition technology though, and by the way, it's not at all uh, a Western technology, is in totalitarian regimes, and particularly China, where they use it for surveillance. So I would say that the most pervasive use of that technology is outside the West for surveillance and for targeting of ethnic minorities in China and so on. And that's, that's a terrible thing. So we're almost out of time. So I wanna kind of start wrapping this up. Oren said that he's an AI optimist. I'm an AI pragmatist. Um, but you know, this is about Oren, so I'm gonna ask him this last question and, and kind of round up where we started, where he describes something that he's excited about. You know, AI can do this thing that, um, and he mentioned it can draw and, and Oren can. So tell us <laughs> beyond your personal you know, take on, example, what are you excited about that AI is able to do or will be able to do soon that would just be changing the world for better? Two things very quickly. Uh, one thing at the Allen Institute for AI, we are more and more using AI in the context of science and scientific discovery. And I'm excited about it uh, accelerating science, particularly in the context of medicine and biomedicine and help to have us uh, healthier. Something that I personally am not working on, but I'd like to, and I see huge potential for, is AI in assistive technology. The fact of the matter is all of us, whether you're young or older, we're getting older. And we, I, I see this with my parents who thankfully are still alive, still very cogent, but uh, every day they struggle more with walking, with seeing, with hearing, with all these things that we as somewhat younger people take for granted. I would love it so much and we need AI to accelerate for this by the time I and all of us get to the point where we experience these difficulties, there are these technological crutches that help us lead a meaningful and fulfilling life uh, despite having some of, these, um, some of these challenges. And that is such a great use case for AI. 
Thank you so much for the questions of your attentions and also for your politeness. I'm sure I said <laughs> some things that people uh, disagreed with and nobody walked out. Actually, it's kind of dark, so maybe people did walk out. But no, nobody booed, so thank you. Thank you. So with that, we're officially out of time. Thank you so much, Oren, for this wonderful chat. Thank you all for joining. Enjoy the rest of the day. That's it for today's episode. And thanks again to Oren and Chirac for the talk. This episode of Crosscut Talks was produced by Seth Halloran and engineered by Resty Bacall and Victoria Ralph. And the event was produced by Jake Newman and Anne O'Dowd. Madeline Happold managed our audience engagement. And you can subscribe to Crosscut Talks wherever you listen. And if you like the show, please review us. We want to know what you think. For the latest political, environmental, and cultural news from the Pacific Northwest, visit CrossCut.com. And if you would like to support the work we do at CrossCut, whether it's live events we host or the in-depth reporting we do every day, go to CrossCut.com membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to on-demand programming on Seattle's PBS station, KCTS 9. CrossCut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Paris Jackson. We'll be back soon with another conversation.